0: the only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash ETM and enter code ETM at checkout. joindeletem dot slash ETM. Go to joindeliteme.com slash ETM and use code ETM for 20% off. Our guest on the show, Ash Ambridge, asks a very powerful question. What are the things you're doing just because they make sense? Sometimes you can be doing the thing that makes sense, but it still makes you miserable. So why not try doing the things that make you curious, curious in life, taking risks, really exploring who you are? Maybe, just maybe, that is the missing
1: link to true wealth in life. You're listening to Millennial Money with award-winning money expert and serial entrepreneur, Come to Game where we flip the script on the old-school approach to everything your parents never taught you about money. Each week, Shauna creates a safe space by talking with special guests from around the world about money wellness, entrepreneurship, traveling like a boss, and what makes millennials tick. Unique stories, trailblazing perspectives, tips, tricks, and everything there is to know about money. Find it all here as you uncover your money story and unlock the life you want to live. Pretty cool, right? Here's Shauna money expert, Indiana Hoosier, and burger aficionado.
0: How do you feel about taking risks? Are you a risk taker or a risk avoider? Ash, our guest, is an internet entrepreneur, speaker, founder of The Middle Finger Project, which is both the title of her blog and her new book, says that there is what she calls transformative power In radical self-reliance and taking risks, you can check all the things you want off your list. Like we know the list, right? Get a good job, start a business, get married, buy a house, start a family, check, 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 all the checks on the list, but you can still feel really unsatisfied with life. Risks, though, risks change the game. They move you from the life you have to the life you want to have. I mean, that is inherently what a risk is. And, And not all of them work out, but a lot of them do. So we talk about risk, the power in quitting things, which I just love because I've quit a lot of things in my life, how to let go of imposter syndrome and the difference between happiness and meaningfulness in your life. This episode was recorded in early March, right before the COVID-19 shutdown, but I feel this message is really as powerful now as ever, so I hope you enjoy. Well, Ash, I am so excited to have you join us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Shauna, as I have just expressed, I am obsessed with your podcast. This podcast is the best, Millennial Money. I love it, and I didn't actually pay you to
0: plug that, so... (laughs) (laughs)
2: Thanks for having me.
0: We have so much to talk about, but I wanted to start out with this. Something really it piqued my interest that you say that there is what you call transformative power in radical self-reliance and taking risks. There's a lot there for us to unpack, but tell me about this. Like, why is this so life-changing? What is it about risks that will that will radically change our lives? Well, you know,
2: when I talk about radical self-reliance, what I'm talking about here is women learning how to make their own damn money. And so often, I think you know, it's we've become accustomed to being managed and corralled and told what to do every step of the way throughout our careers and our lives. That I think we've lost a lot of our, our own instincts when it comes to creativity, right. And yes, passion and what it is we really want to be doing. So I think that risk is such a beautiful thing because usually it's an indicator that you are getting back to your instincts that we've, we've been, we've been, um, kind of like ignoring. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Yes. Yes. Risk is such a great thing. I think you're, you're on the right track.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have, I've been an entrepreneur my entire career, except a small little blip of time, uh, and risk has been an absolute centerpiece of that. I, I always say, if I'm not taking risks, then I'm not, I'm not living. I'm not, I'm not doing this thing right. But I know for ri- risk, for a lot of people, is really paralyzing because we like comfort. We are creatures of comfort, and so I'm kind of curious, what are some tips that you have for somebody who who maybe knows that they should be taking risks, but they're but they're stuck? Is there any way to? help you move through that, that really, gosh, there's so many emotions that come up when you start
2: talking about taking risks. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things that happen too. Like with risk, um, I think one of the first things we need to consider is what are the things that we're doing just because they make sense? Because sometimes you can be doing something because it makes sense, um, but it can make all the sense in the world and still make you miserable. So I think that's an important thing to think about. Like, okay, well, am I, you know, is this risk something that I want to be taking? Um, Maybe because it doesn't make sense. I think looking at things differently is really useful. (laughs) And I would encourage you to do what makes you curious instead. So it's not like you're taking this risk. You don't have to stop doing anything right now. You don't have to quit your job right this minute. But I think it's useful to do what makes you curious instead. It's kind of the opposite of what makes sense because in order for it to qualify as something that you're curious about, you probably don't know a lot about it yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Interesting, huh? Yeah. So that can be a little bit of a risk. And then, you know, the third thing I think about too is, you know, let's, let's analyze the difference between happiness and meaningfulness. This is something that I talk about quite often. I think most of us are trained to seek happiness. And so for that, that does cover, you know, it's like having the roof over your head, having a salary. We've got all the check marks, uh, gone down the list, but yet we're still feeling so unfulfilled in so many ways. So. Turns out the difference between happiness and meaningfulness is simple. Happiness is about getting what you want. Meaningfulness though, is about getting what you want and also expressing and defining yourself while you do it. So that's another thing that I would think through. Okay, well, you know, do I feel unfulfilled and um, if so, then where could I find more meaning? Because if you're going to take a risk, make sure that it's bringing that meaning to your life. Make it feel really good to be taking. And it's,
0: I, I love that that you just define that that difference. And I find to tell me how you feel about this, that taking risks, you don't know the outcome when you take the risk. So if we're talking about, starting a business or relationships or even a money decision, it's okay sometimes to take some of those risks that maybe it, maybe it doesn't work out. Maybe you end up going a different route, but that's okay. You don't have to know the outcome when you take the risk.
2: Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> I I look at this oftentimes in terms of, um, in terms of, Project work as well. Like, if you were to take on a client project. Um, you are going. You're not going to know what the end result is that you're going to create for this client. You have to go through the process of doing your research and putting something down on paper and experimenting a little bit with it, and then tweaking it and iterating. And then finally, you're going to come up with something that you really like. But you don't know what the what that end thing is going to be when you sit down to do a simple project for a client, for example. And the same applies to you in your life. You might not know what the end result's going to be, but you have to actually make the t- time to sit down and say, okay, I am an active project. I'm going to work on myself. I am now my client. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: iterate it up. <laughs> exactly. It's always easier when it's on someone else. It's much harder when we're doing this for ourselves, right? Which is why we all, we all stay in these loops sometimes. <laughs>
2: It's so true. But all of the things that I've ever been successful with, I had no idea I was going to be successful with until I sat down and and tried and then figured it out. And everything is iteration. I still iterate every single day of my life.
0: That's such great advice. I mean, I would definitely amplify what you just said. It's It's been everything in my career that if I look back at there are surprise things, I didn't know that I would be doing these things or that I would be good at these things. And I think when we fall in that trap of feeling, especially with social media and everything that's out there that we have to copy what somebody else is doing to be successful, I think that's where we lose a bit of ourselves. And if we could all just lean into like what is so super special about us, I, I just think the world would change a bit. (laughs) <laughs>
2: yeah, wouldn't that be great? We're so we're so full of so many gifts, and we're hiding all of them behind these super professional masks that we walk around with every day. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a big fan of quitting. I think that when we when we actively pursue something anything where we get tripped up tends to be when it doesn't work out right away and then we feel bad about ourselves and we somehow take on the blame that we tried this new thing and we totally sucked at it and therefore we don't want to try any new things because we we feel we feel kind of dumb Um, But I always say, hey, man, if you went into a restaurant and you tried the duck nards and then magically (laughs) discovered that you don't actually like duck nards, are you going to feel bad about that? No, you are going to go to a different restaurant. And that's all this is. Go to a different restaurant. Try something. Try something else. Nothing is wrong with you. Something was wrong with the thing you tried. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I love the idea that that uh quit often you
0: you bring that up a lot. I I spent the weekend reading your book, your new book, The Middle Finger Project, and the thing I kept coming back to was your Permission, I would say to, to the reader to quit often. That that that's okay to to do that. And yet we we live in this society where we feel either we have to be perfect or you know quitting somehow makes us feel like we we failed at this thing, and we certainly can't admit that we quit. Um, are, are there
2: any rules to quitting things? Ooh, I love that question. I think for me. I tend to be guided more by feelings than I do by logic. What I mean by that is uh, going back to this idea of if you know something makes sense. We all make decisions every day because it makes sense to do so, and we rationalize our way into a future. Um, we might, for example, I talked to a lot of women who, let's say, are coming from a corporate background. And so it makes sense for them if they wanted to try to strike it out on their own to then do freelance consulting and whatever the thing they were already doing was. But then what happens is they still feel just as unfulfilled and crappy about it, but they've done the thing that makes sense. So I think the the only rule for me is if it doesn't feel good, that is when you quit it. I am okay with that. I think if it feels good and it's hard, don't quit. Because it feels good, but lots of stuff is going to be hard. But if it doesn't feel good, that's a sign. Quit, move on, cut your losses, and go. Try something new.
0: And don't be afraid of the something new. I think that there are... There are so many something news that I've done in my life. I'm sure you can echo the same thing that that the act of quitting something else walked you into this new place that you didn't even know you would be in or you didn't even know that would exist. And it was more wonderful and amazing than you could even imagine.
2: Oh, yeah! isn't that the truth? I think I mean, any kind of business, for example, is such a great Personal development tool: the things you learn about yourself um, as you have to sort through different challenges and different problems, and then you realize, "Wow, I'm actually really good at this thing," or oh, I really like this part of it. I didn't really realize I would like that." Uh, it's kind of like when you travel anywhere, and you you get to see how you handle different situations, and you get to learn more about yourself that you never knew before, and that opens all sorts of doors.
0: And you talk about challenges. I love not only being able to share someone's book or someone's company or their app they created, but I also love really sharing their story because I think the stories are what makes us all human and and connects us all. And I want to talk a little bit about your story. I know that you grew up in, in Pennsylvania in a trailer park, and you say you had a string of like dead end jobs. You lost your parents by 21. You were living without a safety net. You said you were even sleeping like in a Kmart parking lot, which maybe a lot of people could could relate to some version of that story. But I, I'm curious, like, what was the moment that really changed things for you? Like, what was the moment when you were you were like, you know what, I, I'm not going to accept this life anymore. And I'm going to walk into something new.
2: Well, you hit the nail on the head with the Kmart parking lot. I did have a string of kind of dead end jobs and I was very disappointed because I had tried so hard I had tried so hard to be the the model citizen and the model employee and I figured that if you don't do anything wrong then nothing bad will ever happen to you <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and you know I-, I was punished for that mentality this mentality is the one that kind of like we all grew up thinking and believing and I really had such high expectations for it because I didn't have anything else to cling to, so I did go to the city and I did work my way up in corporate America and I did everything, quote unquote, correctly, and still, um, to find myself with with a ton of debt and no money saved, no idea how to make more money. I had no control over my own personal finances, right or or really the trajectory of my life. I felt like I was kind of just being blown around. <laughs> I think, I think a lot of us can relate to that idea. Yes. <laughs> it's an awful feeling. And and I remember I needed, I needed to save myself and I, I couldn't turn to a traditional employer at the time because it's like, okay, well, What's that process look like? You still have to go, you have to apply, wait for an interview, you know, go, wait for a decision. And then even if you do get hired, you still have to wait between two to four weeks to get your first paycheck kind of a deal. And I was in such a jam at the time that I I just realized that I didn't have anything to sell like most people might when they're in a bind. But one thing I did have were my own ideas. So it was in that Kmart parking lot when I realized that I needed to become radically self-reliant in that moment and learn how to take an idea or a skill or a talent that I had and sell it to someone who wasn't an employer. And that's exactly what I did. And I never turned back.
0: Mm, I love that. Yeah. You talk about ideas being, you say they're like a modern day resume and that there is there is power around ideas. And yet I think so many of us feel, and I'm guilty of this myself, sometimes I'll have an idea and I, I automatically start discounting it. Nobody will want it. Nobody will like it. That's a dumb idea. It's been done before, blah, 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 blah. And then you throw that idea in the trash can when that idea is something that could serve someone else. How do you go through the process of of not doing that, like of not discounting those ideas and, and validating which one's, are really worthy of, 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 you know, coming to the masses.
2: Man, we all do that. Don't we? We are, uh, yes. we're so horrible
0: to ourselves. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> if we treated friends the way we treat ourselves, we
2: would have no friends. <laughs> Can you imagine if a friend came to you with an idea and you were like, no, that's stupid. (laughs) Yeah, that's terrible. (laughs) Terrible. Throw that out. This is the dumbest idea you've
0: ever had. Yeah. I mean, we would literally like not have any friends. And yet we do that. We do it to ourselves every single day.
2: Yeah. And you know what? So much of that has to do with imposter syndrome and just feeling like we're never really qualified enough to be doing anything in this life.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think the beauty of that, I mean, you talk a lot about imposter syndrome. I've studied a lot of people who have done big things, and it's always fascinating to me when I hear their underlying fears and I mean their fears are the same fears that I have that nobody will like me that somebody will say I'm fat or I'm ugly or say I'm stupid or so it's it's really like curious to me how we all fall into that trap and and yet we punish ourselves over and over and over again where we're not taking these risks
2: yeah you know what we can't see ourselves objectively and I think that that's the, the most important thing you can do for yourself when you are feeling like Maybe your ideas are stupid and maybe you don't trust yourself enough to go forward with it. I like to do this little exercise and I swear I do this. It's ridiculous, but it's helpful. Um, Where if you were to enter a courtroom, imagine you are on one side of the courtroom and you are arguing against yourself and you're the imposter and your ideas are not good and no one should listen to you and who cares who are you to do X and then on the other side, you've got the side of you that really just wants to try that thing. And you you maybe have a little glimmer of hope and you kind of just like, you want to, but uh. and so a judge, right? A judge is there and the judge has to make a decision. Well, are you qualified or not? And what the judge is going to do, he, he's not really going to listen to your arguments or she, let's call her she, Uh, The judge isn't really going to listen to their arguments as much as the evidence, and they're going to look at the evidence presented, and that evidence comes in the form of things that people thank you for every day, Um, the accomplishments you have under your belt, the things that you've made a difference for other people in your life, Um, every single email that's been praising you for something. Any 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 time you've done something for another person or something great that you feel really good about, this is all evidence, and the judge is going to look at that evidence and go, "Oh my God, sorry, but get your butt in the ring because you are more than qualified." And um, sometimes we have to look at our own evidence, and I do do this. I keep email folders. I keep all sorts of documentation on my own capabilities because we can never see ourselves objectively like other people can.
0: Okay, friend, I want to know. That's QUINCE.com slash ETM to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash ETM. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I was paying for vacations finance smarter as with all cards credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply hey my name's otis gray host of the daily book club a daily podcast where i read wonderful old books one chapter at a time simple as that whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time or just relax to a good book listen to the daily book club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. It's Tuesday. So we have another Ask Shauna from Brandon. Brandon says, Hi, Shauna. I love your podcast. For budgeting, what percentage do you recommend to go towards housing? And what percentage do you recommend to go towards investing? Thank you so much. Well, Brandon, I like it. You're my type of guy. You're just direct to the point, (laughs) which I love. Thank you so much for being a podcast listener. And this is a really great question because Uh, there's lots of ways to think about this one. And unfortunately, there isn't an exact number because it really does uh, change depending on your own situation. But there are a couple of ways to think about this. There are a couple of those standard rules, if you were, or guidelines. You may have heard of the 50-20-30 budget split. This is something if you read articles, listen to other podcast episodes, you probably have heard about this. But It's just a guideline to help you figure out where your budget might be out of sorts and how you can kind of shape all of your expenses to fit in this. So the 50 stands for 50% of your take-home pay should go to your fixed expenses. And that is everything from housing to credit card minimum payments, to your car payment, student loan payment, anything that you absolutely have to, absolutely have to pay In a month, 50% of your take-home pay. Then the next 20% of your take-home pay should be for savings. And that is everything from your emergency fund to investment savings, includes matching funds if you have a 401k with a company. And and that's your travel savings, whatever, Christmas savings, whatever, should be lumped into that 20%. And then the last 30% of your take-home pay should be for all of those variable expenses, eating out, shopping, going to concerts, all of the things that you love to do but aren't necessarily necessities. And what you often find is that, or what I find, is that most people are heavy, maybe 50, 60, maybe even 70% on the fixed, and then the rest is over on variable expenses. Or you might see it the other way, where variable expenses is really high. But what we tend to leave out is that 20% of savings. And so this isn't, again, for you to have your budget in these exact proportions. So if you can only save 2% each month for savings or 5% or 1%, whatever it is, it's better than nothing. But this just gives you a little rule of thumb. And then there's another old standard rule that you should spend more, no more, I should say, than 30% of your gross income on housing. The rule is a bit outdated, but could serve as a guideline for you. Here are some ways that I just think it doesn't quite make sense. Let's say you are a high income earner. Maybe you make $250,000 a year. If you follow this rule, it would advise you spending around $6,200 on rent or home ownership costs. That's 30%, but that might be way too high of a number considering other expenses that you have. It it also doesn't take into account your full money picture. Do you have debt? Do you have student loans, alimony, child support? What about retirement savings? So you need to think really realistically about your situation and what makes sense, keeping in mind all of the other financial obligations and goals that you have as well. I like to try and keep housing closer to 20 to 25% and then leave room for investing, savings, and other money goals, traveling. Obviously not right now, but traveling is one of those goals that I always add into my budget. Plus, I like to build in what I call an oh shit percentage, if you will, excuse my French, into the budget each month because shit happens. (laughs) And I like to leave a, a definitely some sort of padding in there above and beyond whatever I'm saving for emergency funds because stuff's going to happen just like this quarantine nobody saw this really coming. Not to say that we're going to go through something like this again. I don't know. If you if you know, if you have a crystal ball, please let me know. But stuff's going to happen. And so leaving a little extra padding in there, and I tend to just take that from, from the housing budget, budget and try to keep my housing budget as low as humanly possible. Of course, still, I've got to live in a place and I want to live in a place that I enjoy, but get where I'm going with that. And then investing is just the same way. I I like to stay around 10 to 15%, but sometimes that number isn't feasible given other goals. So that's where you could use that 20% marker if you will and just lump in all of your savings in there is just a guideline to to check and see where you are with your savings. So hopefully Brandon that give you a little bit of of guidance. Again, just make sure that whatever number you choose, you're balancing it out with your other financial obligations. So you aren't just literally heavy on the housing expenses and that you do have room in your budget for your other goals and the other stuff that I know you want to do. And it's not about having an ego, right? I mean, it's, it's, about, it's about loving yourself. The way that that a friend would, like we said, if you were in a court and you were on the other side, it's it's giving yourself that that kind of warm hug that you are worthy, that your ideas are good, and that you have a place in the world.
2: Mm, Yeah, I like picturing the friend and the warm hug. Yeah, warm hug indeed. (laughs) I, I mean, gosh, there are so many people. I think of it oftentimes, like if I if I ever have a conversation with a young 23-year-old girl. I'm 35 now, so to me, 23 years old is super young. And I do feel very confident talking to a 23-year-old about any advice and guidance that I could give them because I think experience is useful But we we neglect to realize that someone who's just a year younger than us or even the same age or even older than us might not have the same experiences that we have. So in reality, in that sphere of things, like let's say with being like a CPA uh, or, you know, any anyone who's actually got a title, like those people aren't qualified in the things that we are. And so we are very useful for them. And it's important to remember that. Yeah, yeah.
0: I I want to dive a little bit into your money mindset, and I'm curious. So that you're you're in this parking lot in Kmart. we'll just use this as a visual example, and and we move through your life, and you start the middle finger project, and you really start being an entrepreneur and embracing your talents. Can you talk me through a little bit, like how your your money, your mindset has shifted from from that time to this time to get you where you are now?
2: Yes. I, I mean, listen, one of the things that I I really had such an advantage with was my previous career in sales and marketing. So, Prior to learning how to sell my own self and my own ideas and talents, I was selling other people's ideas and <laughs> things that, <laughs> that that they you know needed me to sell, and honestly, that is much more difficult in so many ways and I, I was very good at that. so I was trained as a salesperson, and I think that that was really useful for me, coming from this small town, rural Pennsylvania, and not really knowing a lot about the world. I think also having, you know, that small town background was helpful for, for selling myself because I approached every single interaction with this just wide eyed innocence. I didn't assume that people were going to be mean and horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I just assumed everyone was kind of like, you know, the people in a small town and they're very friendly and chatty. So I went at, at it that way. And I started to realize early on that. While everyone else was following the script, the one thing that seemed to be getting me praised and the clients loving me and calling me directly was the exact opposite. It was, it was that I wasn't following the script and I was just being myself and I was, I was bringing crea- creativity to the table every day with creative ideas. So I learned that those things were valuable. But I think one of the number one things you have to do when you're making the shift is realize that everyone else's money story is not your money story. And as much as you want to tell yourself that, wow, a thousand dollars, for example, is really expensive. So I'm not going to charge a thousand dollars because my money story tells me that that's a lot of money. You have to remember that you're talking to someone else who for them, a thousand dollars might be $20 and you don't know, and you cannot decide what a thousand dollars means to them before they do.
0: So how do you how do you walk that out? I mean, how do you know what the right price is? Then is it is it what feels good to you? Is it what feels challenging to you? How do you figure that out?
2: I mean, there's a combination of things that I do now that uh, with pricing, but in the beginning, it really is very much trial and error. Uh, very much we talked about iteration a little bit, but so much of it is testing, you know, what the market is willing to bear. And then in combination with what feels good for you to be earning, because listen, like we can do a lot of stuff to make money and we can do it in a lot of different ways. But if you are miserable doing that every day, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Don't, don't do it. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff I could do right now for money. Uh, but unless it's worth it, financially, and unless um, it makes sense for the business as a greater whole, I have to rein myself in. Um, Sometimes that can be really useful when it comes to money, that it's not about you or your ego or what you think about the money, but you have to think of yourself as a steward of a greater entity, as a business owner, and you are responsible to that business to make it run. So uh you can't really afford <laughs> to take less money than you should for certain yes. things yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. And I have to ask you, you have something called a hot dog theory of money and I I'm just I'm super curious. You have to tell me about this.
2: <laughs> ah, the hot dog theory of money is great. I mean, obviously a lot of the, what we're talking about right now applies to uh, entrepreneurship, applies to freelance life uh, because that's what I specialize in. And this is no different, but it really also applies if you are an employee and you're you're just having trouble even asking for so much as a raise. The hot dog theory of money goes like this. If you were a vendor on the Jersey Shore selling hot dogs. (laughs) okay, I got the visual. I've got the visual. Yep. A, because hot dogs are obviously hilarious. And B, because this simplifies the act of asking for money greatly. Um, If you were this vendor and someone approached you and said, hey, buddy, how much for a hot dog? You are not going to hem and haw and get all nervous and say, oh, you know, well, uh, you know, wh- what's your budget or, um, you know, I can tell, I can tell that you're struggling right now. So how about we do it for, uh, you know, 20% off, <laughs> <Or> right? <laughs> you don't start doing all of those things and having these, these cold sweats. You're just going to state the price and it's going to be very matter of fact. And you're going to say the hot dog costs two fifty. Would you like one? And that person is going to respond with either yes or no, um, because the price is the price is the price. And we see things like a common hot dog. It's very obvious. We understand there's the cost of production. There's the cost of packaging. There's the cost of marketing, advertising, of getting the hot dogs over to the stand. There's the cost of this, this person's time selling the hot dogs. All of these are costs. And then on top of it, we also understand that profit needs to be a cost, Uh, when you factor in what you're charging for a hot dog. It has to be, otherwise your boss wouldn't have you here selling these hot dogs. But when we go to sell our own wares, our own services, our own ideas, we don't factor any of that in. We don't factor in profit. Most of all, (laughs) we feel really bad for profit. We feel greedy and selfish and awful. Um, and we start doing those things that you would never do if you were just selling a, a hot dog on the side of the road. So when you are selling your own stuff, think about it as as the the price is the price is the price. it's there for a reason. It supports all of these things, and um it is it's really a declarative statement, isn't it? It's not really yes, something that right. needs to be so complicated.
0: right. Absolutely. And you're right. I mean, it applies to anything, whether you run your own business or you're asking for a raise where you work. The price is the price is the price. Yeah, And and standing in and owning that, I think, is a really powerful place to be in without, of course, you know, without, of course, you know, uh, claiming a price that is that is ridiculous. you got to claim a price that is that is worth your skills. But but I think there's nothing wrong with owning what
2: you're worth. Oh, totally. And you know what? That person is either gonna buy your hot dog or they're not. And there's so many reasons why they might not. Maybe they're not in the mood of a hot dog. Maybe, you know, they're they're vegan. You know, whatever. (laughs) Maybe they've decided that two fifty is not worth it to them for the hot dog, but that doesn't mean that your hot dog isn't worth two fifty. Exactly. Mic drop on that one. (laughs) This sounds so dirty, (laughs) right? (laughs) So
0: tell me a little bit about, so the Middle Finger Project was uh, a blog that you created, became super successful, and now you've moved it into a book. Tell me a little bit about like like what you talk about, what, what, uh, do you have a favorite chapter in the Middle Finger Project? Tell me a little bit about this, this sort of evolution.
2: Ooh, yes, I I do have a favorite chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Most writers do. Yeah, you know, The Middle Finger Project is really for anyone who it, 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 it hates their job but doesn't know what else to do. This is a common problem and it's why I started The Middle Finger Project 11 years ago now. Wow. Ooh, in the year 2009. Because I was also struggling, and in the the beginning, it became—it was a thing. Because all of the people I knew in my real life rolled their eyes at me, and they told me that work was supposed to be hard, and that's why they call it work. And welcome to Mm. the real world, right? And like, no, I want to go back. I want to go back to the fake world. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was—I was just so very disappointed, and I took it very hard that I had worked so hard to escape. You know what I thought was my fate as a cashier at the local dollar general, um, only to find that normal was the most disappointing thing that ever happened to me. So I was very disappointed, started talking about this on the internet because it was the only place where I felt like I could have conversations. And then all of a sudden these other people started showing up and they felt the same way too. And uh, slowly but surely, I created this little community full of people from around the world who held similar values. And over time, it just has kept evolving and kept evolving and kept evolving. And then what I started doing was selling my own skills as a writer because that's what I love to do and that's what I wanted to be doing. And so I started a creative writing agency on the side and the Middle Finger Project became this really great lead source for me because it had all these people who valued my ideas and maybe they were starting their own side hustles and they needed some fun creative writing whatever it was it evolved from there and then people started asking me how I was doing so well with my creative writing agency and how are you selling you know these packages and how are you how are you so booked right right and then i i you know i've leaned on a lot of what i had learned in marketing and sales in corporate america and started uh, giving some workshops on that and then people just loved them and they were like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that and I, I never thought to do it that way. And it became this role for me on the side essentially where I was leading with my own ideas on, on how to make your own damn money and do it in a way that feels good for everybody and sell the shit out of your stuff. <laughs> And and, and it kept growing. And so now we've got this really thriving community. I I eventually ended up shutting down the creative writing agency piece of it. And now I'm focused 100% on just having this kind of like training and development firm that really specializes in, in this and helping women make their own money. And so now the book was just the next step for that. It's not at all a compilation of blog posts. It really is its own piece of work that goes through the mental, every single mental struggle we're all having about feeling like imposters, feeling like we're not good enough. Who am I to do that thing? And sharing some of my own stories and some of the things that I've done that have helped me along the way.
0: Mm, I love it. Yeah. I I, like I said, I was reading it this weekend and one of the one of my favorite chapters really stood out for me is, uh, picket fences are not a dangerous idea. (laughs) And, and I love that you say that freedom is more valuable than your paycheck. That like just really stuck with me and kept resonating. And I, I think, you know, we've, we've talked about this, this entire episode, but, um, I, I think that a lot of us think that those two things can't be, can't be separated. Um, that you have to choose. You have to choose either freedom or you have to choose a paycheck, and you're basically saying, like, no, that's
2: you don't have to make that choice. Well, mm. like, yeah, not in, not with the tools we have available to us today. I mean, most of us are are using the internet to communicate, but what I'm advocating for is learning how to use it to create. And when you do that, you do take so much of your future into your own hands and what you can create with the internet is is endless. And that's the cool part about it. You're cutting out the middleman. You don't necessarily need the employer anymore who's going to then sell your skills to some other third party. You can sell your own skills and your own knowledge to uh, people from around the world directly and make great money and use use this wonderful tool that we all have at our disposal for essentially free. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. It's just a new it's a new way of looking at the the definition of work and what work actually looks like. We're we're changing that every single day.
0: Well Ash, this has been amazing. You're absolute joy to to talk with. I would love for you to leave us with like one nugget of advice that you feel like I should remember after this episode. Of how I can make tomorrow a little bit better than today. How I can let go of some of that imposter syndrome and really walk into who I am. What would you? What would you tell us?
2: Mm, two things. Two things. I'm being greedy. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Go for it. <laughs> the first is just hey, like find a problem that you care about and and work on solving that problem. That's what work is. We could solve a, a lot of problems. We are qualified and capable to do lots of different problem solving with lots of different things, but what's the problem you actually care about? Use that as a clue. And then once you get there and you get to this point where now you do have to exchange <laughs> your your capabilities in exchange for some kind of financial compensation, just remember that selling is helping. That's all you are doing you're you're standing up and saying, hey, here's what I'm really great at. Here's what I love. Um, can I help you with this? Do you want my help? And it is that simple. It doesn't have to be so complicated. You are being such a generous person by standing up and offering your help because no one ever hired anyone to be unhelpful. So if they're hiring you, it means that you've been a success. They want your help and you are standing there offering it and just give the world your most best and brightest uh, every single day and show up with this clear and excited heart and you're going to be great.
0: I had so much fun talking with Ash. As you can tell, she is definitely high energy, which I don't normally get that high of energy, so it's fun when I can talk to somebody and kind of really get hyped up. This conversation has inspired me to really think about that idea of happiness versus meaningfulness in my own life and just take stock at where I am and where I want to go. So hopefully you're able to do the same thing. You can pick up a copy of her book, The Middle Finger Project, everywhere books are sold and head to her website, themiddlefingerproject.com to find out more about Ash. So again, on this podcast, we're working really hard to change this language around money and help us to all understand that money touches all aspects of life. So we need to talk about all aspects of life. Now that you're a part of this podcast, it's up to all of us to invite others in. So share this episode with someone that really needs to hear this message today. Invite them in so we can all talk about money in a new, fresh, and fun way.
1: Hey, you. Yes, you. Before you go, we want to say thanks for listening to this episode of Millennial Money.